live. Welcome everybody to this week's podcast. Um, you guys are gonna have to forgive my voice. Um, I'm gonna use cough drops to try and soften the impact. Podcast, but this um, this you guys podcast. are gonna have to forgive my voice for June seventh, two thousand and twenty-two. Today, I've got Alan Ramsey with us, who is a digital transformation maturity assessment specialist with 4.0 Solutions. Alan, welcome. Thank you for having me, Walker. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for joining, brother. So um, you guys may notice that we, uh, we've we changed the format of the podcast, right? And um, we'll be doing a co-host each week. This week, we've got Alan because we're going to be talking about um, a conversation that's been had. Uh, some some uh, It was a conversation in the Discord server that referenced some industry data that says that 80% of manufacturers have started their digital journey. And we're going to have a conversation about that. Um, we're also going to talk about <clears throat> some stuff that Ford's been up to, some um, some things I've been observing as it relates to Ford's journey towards electric vehicles. Um, and, uh, you know, how they're they're trying to transform their company. And then uh, later on in the in the podcast, probably uh, twenty five minutes in or so, we'll get into the eighty have 80 percent of all manufacturers really started their digital journey. So while you got for those of you who are in the chat, and we should have a smaller audience live today because there's a ton of people from our community who are at Automate twenty twenty two in Detroit this week. Um, so I want to give a big shout out to all those folks. Uh, Cheryl listed a bunch of the names. There's a great chat. A running chat that's going on in the Discord server um, about Automate 2022 and what people are seeing on the on the floor there. And um, I'm going to go ahead and spoiler alert: they're not seeing anything really profound. <laughs> not seeing anything much different than what we're accustomed to seeing. So, um, <laughs> but um, with that, let's get let's get into a couple of announcements, and then uh, we'll have Alan introduce himself, give us a little bit big background on you know, who he is and what he's been doing and why he's with our team. But a uh, couple of big announcements. So we want to be a, give a big shout out to everybody who is at Automate 2022 in Detroit. Um, Brian, Brian Pryby, um, uh, a whole list of people. Uh, and I, I, I'll mention people by name later on. Uh, next week, interesting, this is a, Tatsoff sent out an email. They're going to be doing Fundamentals of Frameworks training purely online. We'll include uh, a link to that training so that you can sign up for next week. It's uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, June 14th to the 16th. It's four hours long, 8 a.m. to noon each day, central time. Um, if you're a part of their integrator program, then that's that training is included. If you are like an end user or something, then there there is a fee for the training. But if you're a member of their integrator program, then it's you know, this is part of your, your free membership with them. So highly recommend that if you are interested in expanding your basic skill set, the foundations, the fundamentals of frameworks, highly recommend you do that. I will actually be attending that training. And I know a couple other people from our team is going to be there, are going to be there. Um, and I'll be attending as a student. So I want to see, I'm going to be sitting through those sessions, uh, from a student perspective. Um, but the course description, Factory Studio Fundamentals course is designed to present the basic concepts of the platform and provide working knowledge to develop SCADA and HMI applications. It covers the software main modules, tags, alarms, historian, device communication, database connection and displays. Hand-on exercises are provided to allow each student to complete the project, a project at their own place, uh, uh, own pace. I'm going to drop this in there. Uh, this is an unsponsored announcement. We just let, we reached out to Dave Hellier and said, hey, Dave, uh, we'll be announcing this um, in the live stream today. Uh, and actually, we won't be able to do that because the link is too long. Uh, we'll include it in the description. Um, <clears throat> the, I, I highly recommend that if you're going to play with frameworks, you go through this, especially if you're you work for an integrator, you'll be able to do this for free. So, highly, highly recommend. Alan, are you uh, considering doing the uh, frameworks training? Yes, sir. I am. I am. 
definitely okay. teacher education opportunity there. Have you played with frameworks at all? I have not. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Um, so why don't you tell us about yourself, Alan? Sure. Thank you again, Walker, for this great opportunity to uh, sit down here with you and be co-host today. So this is exciting for me. I'm usually on the other side of the, uh, the curtain there. So uh, just real quick, um, Alan Ramsey, I have about 26 years now, approaching 26 years, wow, of uh, professional engineering and project management experience. Uh, just started out, I'm, I'm probably the most surprised person to be here personally because of my path here. Started out, uh, went the community college route and got a, a drafting and design degree, as well, which was pre-engineering, which parlayed into me getting my uh, four-year mechanical engineering degree. And this was happening during the, uh, the mid to late 90s, mind you. And back then, mentors were telling me, Mr. Ramsey, you need to not pigeonhole yourself. You need to get an MBA. So I went to the dark side and I got my MBA in finance in the late 90s, early 2000s, which I think uh, complements the engineering portion of me very well. It allows me to communicate effectively. So a lot of, over the years, the last 26 years, I've led a lot of projects, which led me into integration projects, including Wonderware, as well as GE Simplicity and upgrading those, uh, of course, to Ignition. And that allowed me to uh, facilitate my ignition and systems uh, engineering experience in Six Sigma as well as ISO that allows me to uh, develop projects from a systemization point of view. So that's sort of me. And uh, back to you, Walker. Thanks, man. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Alan was a, a late addition um, <laughs> because JP Manas, who was going to be our guest this week, co-host this week, um, he's based in Canada. He um, and he's also a mining guy. He uh, he's at Automate 2022. So he he wasn't a lot of the people that are on our list to co-host. They're at Automate 2022. So uh, Alan agreed to to step in. The reason why is because it's actually very appropriate for Alan to comment on what our subject is this week. Are 80 percent of manufacturers really have 80 percent of manufacturers really started their digital transformation journey? And that's just not. Well, I won't answer for everybody, but I will give an answer. That's for sure. Um, but uh, Richard Shaw is, is also going to co-host uh, with us one of these days. He's also at Automate 2022, Pry and Pryby. Uh, lots of people from the community are there. If you guys are in the community, highly recommend you check out, go to the Discord server. I don't know which channel they are talking about Automate 2022, but um, there's a great discussion going on in there. And obviously you know, Rockwell's getting hit over the head many, many times. But the um, interesting thing about Alan and I, which we learned totally accidentally, was um, Alan, Alan did the design of a, a drum that, uh, like, yeah, you guys, I worked in mining, you know, the first five years of my career. Uh, we had a major mine accident while I was there. Basically, we were doing a, a skip test so we were doing a, um, if you're working a mine, you basically have two types of shafts. Generally, I was in an underground mine about half mile underground. So we went down a, an elevator a half mile, took seven minutes to get down there. Then we went out seven miles underneath Cuga Lake in upstate New York to mine salt, right? Mm. Um, you have that, the number three shaft is where all the intake fresh air came in and it's where you took people in and out of the mine. And the number one shaft is where the exhaust air came out and that's where all the salt came up. So every, uh, not every shift, but once a day, the, um, skip operator, that is the person who's running the skip itself has to do one person a day. One of the three shifts, they have to do a test where they simulate that the, uh, the hydraulic brakes have failed and they have to test the backup brakes. Um, otherwise you can't put people on that skip Well, there was a, one day, and I think this was 2003, 2004, based on Alan's emails, um, <clears throat> there was a backup hoist operator who was doing the test, and he forgot to close a relief valve before he started the test. So when he went to test the backup brakes, that relief valve was wide open. So the backup brake lines never pressurized, and the skip just free fell a half mile. I mean, uh, now this skip was enormous. You put, it had two stories on it. You, you know, you'd send 40 grown men down in that you know, grown men and women each shift. You would 
they literally pull pickup trucks up in there on a hoist and lower it all the way down. I mean, it, it, so I don't know what its total payload capacity was, but it was a lot. I mean, it was, you know, certainly 20,000 pounds easily, easily. Um, so that skip just free fell into the mine over speed, over speed, over speed. There's a huge drum that the cable goes on. And finally the, uh, it, it, it exceeded its, um, RPM capacity and literally like the gearbox, which had copper gears in it blew apart. It was spinning so fast. The gearbox itself exploded from the, from the centrifugal force. It literally pulled the gears apart and like chunks of copper blew out through the ceiling. And I mean, it would have killed people if they had been hit by it, but the drum itself, once it got to the end of the cable, the drum was literally pulled right off the shaft. And this drum was, I don't know, you know the dimensions better than I do, but certainly it was eight to 10 feet high, you know, and and maybe uh, 15 to 18 feet wide. I mean, it was enormous drum, this huge thing. <clears throat> that got pulled through the ceiling of the hoist house. So obviously, this was this was tens of millions of dollars worth of damage. The, the shaft was damaged. The skip, when it hit the bottom, it actually submerged like eight to 10 feet in solid bedrock and blue, you know, just crazy damage. Well, I found out we were just shooting the shit and we're talking about Cargill and whatever. And the guy who discovered me, his name is uh, Joe Rolf, uh, R O L F E. He's, he was my maintenance supervisor at Cargill. And I, I happened to be before I was ever in automation, I was just driving a lube truck. So uh, an articulating lube truck, putting hydraulic fluid and stuff in vehicles and that whole story where he, you know, I could read IAC drawings. The electrician couldn't. They had this automated piece of mining equipment, an SMAG mining equipment that he asked me to go out and just read the drawing for this electrician. The electrician gave up. I didn't. I kept asking Joe if I could go out and keep working on it. He said yes. And it took me three days. And I, I learned. I did a crash course and command line PLC program. The whole deal. I just learned everything like in 72 hours. And I fixed that roof bolter. And that was a multi-million dollar roof bolter that hadn't run in like a year. Um, and so from that moment forward, I became like the SMAG guy. And Joe is the one who pushed me. He said, well, you're going to become a, an apprentice um, mechanic. And I learned um, hydraulics and thermodynamics and everything. Um, and then they put me in the electrical program. And I went back to school and got a double E at that same time. And so I did a uh, almost five-year apprenticeship as an electrical, as a, a journeyman electrician. And Joe is the one who found, you know, he's the guy who made that all possible. And, uh, cause he saw my ability. Well, we were just talking about, I mentioned Joe Rolf one day and Alan goes, Hey, I know Joe, I was, I was designing a, a thing for your mind. And so he goes and pulls up this, this is the, like a 20 year old fucking email. And he pulls it up in like 30 seconds, which is crazy. Alan keeps all these emails, but, and he's like, here, here's the email I sent to Joe. And it shows, you know, Sean Pratt, who was one of the lady who was in charge of our um, uh, the underground stock room. J she reported to Joe. Joe was the one who was trying to source this new drum because the mine was closed after this major accident. Alan was the guy you were you designing the replacement yeah. drum, right? That's correct. I, I, I worked closely with uh, getting the, spe the specifications from Rolf and those guys. And then I took that and reverse engineered what I didn't have to create the uh, replacement. It was a rush, definitely a rush job, as you alluded to. And Alan, he literally shows me the email. He shows me the dimensional drawings, like everything for this drum. And I'm like, how fucking small is the, the world that Alan, I'm like, Alan, I worked there at that time. Joe was my boss at that time. I was about at that point right there, you know, 2003, 2004, yeah. I was like four years in Joe discovered me like maybe six months after I started there, which was like 99, 2000. So I was like three or four years in by that point. Um, but yeah, it was crazy. So anyway, Alan, but you had a, you, you've had many stops, but where you came from, when you came to us, you came from the automotive industry. Correct. Correct. What was I it? What was it you were doing in automotive? Sure, sure. I worked in the uh, welding fabrication robot uh, automation shop of uh, Volvo uh, in their uh, Virginia location. And uh, I was actually part of a large scale industry 4.0 project across this particular facility for a large scale project. So in that particular part of the, uh, the facility. Excellent. 
And so, and what do you do for us now? So now that you're here and you've been with, how long have you been? Just a uh, clip six months. So okay. I have been here six months now. So what Alan was brought here to do. So for those of you that don't know sort of what it's like, a lot of people ask this question. So I'll, I'll tell you my perspective and then Alan can tell you, but when we bring people on, when we bring new people on for the first 90 days, we give them very, very, very little guidance. Okay. And that is at my, um, my instruction to our team. So the goal is to really see where people gravitate, right? So Alan was brought here to be a DTMA specialist. That is, he's going to, he's going to lead these meetings. He's going to do scoring. He's going to find, he's going to write the wrote the report. He's going to help them craft their digital strategy. Um, but outside of those instructions, we basically gave him no guidance. We don't give anyone guidance because we want to see where people gravitate, right? We want people to be as engaged as possible. We want to see people identify a vacuum and fill it. And then we, we really more try to codify that in, we try to codify the role to the strength of the individual as opposed to finding the individual for the role that we crafted in some boardroom, right? Uh, which is definitely a different approach <laughs> than I think most organizations. So we brought him in as a DTMA specialist, but Alan, what is it? What is your experience here been like? You know, you've been here six months now. You've completed a couple of DTMAs on your own. Um, but what's the experience been like relative to the experience you've had in other organizations? I would say it's been a most refreshing uh, approach in regards to how you approach the first 90 days of onboarding. I can't emphasize this enough. It's been truly a, a great experience for me in my first 60 months, or excuse me, six months here. So I have truly enjoyed my, uh, my time here thus far in the DTMA specialist role. And so my, 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 to answer your question, it has been a truly refreshing opportunity for me to be able to utilize my systems background in this role to add value. But as you also alluded to, you give people here at our company the ability to add value in numerous opportunities. You're not just pigeonholed to a title at the, at our company. So, you know, it's, it's, I sent an email to, or I sent a message to Carrie, uh, Cheryl and Alan this morning, Cheryl and Alan were both brought on right around the same amount of time or right around the same time for the really the same reason. And we've talked about this before that. And for those of you that are considering starting your own company, or maybe you've already started your own company and, and you're looking to us for guidance, especially if you want to be a systems integrator, I've mentioned this many times and I'll mention it again, all companies, all businesses, you know, I own 49 companies. All of my companies have been built the exact same way. They're done in two steps. Step number one is proving your idea can be monetized. You're just proving viability, right? The approach that we take is what is the value we're going to create and the money will take care of itself. We don't fuck, we don't focus so much on m the commercials. We focus on the value because there's a, an inherent belief that you're going to make money off the value you put into the market, right? And, and we've proven that out many, many times. Step one is proving viability. So everybody who's on your team to begin with has to be incredibly flexible. They got to be comfortable running around with their hair on fire. You know, they got to be, you know, comfortable with calls in the middle of the night and working on the weekends and, you know, because it's your life that first year, you know, when John McLeod, who joined us in, uh, yeah, almost the wrong word, Mario. Yes. Uh, um, they, the John McLeod, when he joined us as chief experience officer um, six years ago, like when we first, you know, seven years ago now, whatever, when we first started, we were, we operated out of a garage. Like, so IntelliC integration operated in a garage and there was no, like we had no systems, <laughs> you know, it was almost like we had one laptop shared across a bunch of people, which we didn't, we had capital for that kind of stuff. But the, you're, you're that first year, you're just, you're just proven viability. That's all you're doing. You're changing systems every week. You're trying, you tried this accounting system. No, I don't like it. We'll move to the next one. There's no, you have nothing written down. All you got is spreadsheets and you're just proven viability in year one. Once you prove viability, you have to bring in a second group of people. 
very rarely is the group of people that you build your company with the key, the people who are going to harden that company. Doesn't mean you're going to get rid of those people, but you're going to move them. They're always going to be operating in the space where their hair's on fire, right? It's, you know, they're going to be in research and development and developing new products and that kind of thing. The second group of people are your systems people. They're the people who come in who they get sick to their stomach when their hair's on fire. They're the people who always, 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 always make their bed before they go out and make their first cup of coffee. It's like those are the people you bring in to build, to codify your business. They're systems peoples. They they see, they think in flow charts. Like that's literally how their brain operates, right? And they're they do gap analysis all day long, you know, a, 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 you know, every day of the week. Alan is a systems guy. Cheryl is a systems gal. So I sent them a, a message, this uh, a comment, uh, a chat this morning. Said, "Hey guys, you're the systems people. I need your voices to be a little louder, right? That's what Alan is here for. Alan is codification of systems. So, and and by the way, the the interesting thing is is um, I think if you look at Alan's resume, you probably would never guess that that's where you would be now, right? I mean, I, I don't think that you you thought that what you're doing with us is where you would be at this exact moment, or maybe that's, that's a great. And, and as I alluded to at the very beginning, I am the most surprised person in, in the organization. I can assure you being able to marry together all of my systems that systemization training and six Sigma process improvement, continuous improvement, ISO background, and being able to facilitate utilizing my uh, ignition training as well. I mean, it's truly a hand glove fit of an opportunity <laughs> That, that I am truly the, the most hammer-blown, hammer-struck person you can imagine here. So I'm truly just having a wonderful, one, it's a wonderful opportunity. And let me say this, you, ha you have, um, uh, one other thing I'll say about this, I, I don't think I've ever told you this before. Um, you're, you're the speed at which, the speed at which, <laughs> Cheryl says she doesn't make her bed in the morning. Um, and Alan does take the best notes in the whole company. Alan and Carrie, <laughs> actually. Alan and Carrie take the best notes. Um, you're so sweet. You're going to get me a cavity walker. Yes. Alan does take the best. I, I, I'm known for the quality of notes that I take. I've known, been known that across my whole career. And Alan puts me to shame. I mean, he makes me look like a bumbling idiot. Uh, Omar, real quick. Have I been tanning? I have not. I, uh, I'm Native American. I've talked about this before. Uh, my dad was Cherokee. Um, I'm, I'm from the South Carolina Cherokee line. And, uh, so I, I tan very, very, very easily. I do have a boat and I have spent some time on my boat and we were, um, uh, we were in the pool on Sunday, but I, I have not been out tanning. No, I just, uh, you know, I just get really, 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 there's a, a great photo of us. We were in on an executive retreat. We were in, uh, Mexico and Cosmo, Mexico. And it was, it was me and three of the other board members that someone took a picture of us and it was like you know, board member A, board member B, me, board member C, and we're like leaning up against the wall. We all had our, we were in a pool and we all had our shirts off and it was like, you know, pasty, pasty, you know, I'm a red, I have a red tan, you know, pasty, you know, I just, I just get very, very, very tan Omar. So, um, all right, let's, Alan, you're the perfect person for today's subject. So I want to get into, you know, this, I want to talk about this conversation that popped up in discord. Cause I, I think it's, it's, um, totally apropos and I'm going to pivot back to the Ford thing here in a second. Um, and that's this, <clears throat> I want to read, I'm going to read the actual, the actual thread. So, uh, it, Cheryl, is it okay if I, uh, share the names of the people that are in the thread? Um, or do I want to keep it anonymous? Yes. Yes, I can share. She said yes, I believe. There okay, perfect. The so this was uh, David McGraw, Richard Shaw, Cheryl. Um, is it Doug Zimmerman, Don Zimmerman, um, and Brian Pryby? We're all having this conversation um, in Discord, and uh, it started with McGraw saying that I've I've mentioned on a call or two in the past that I'm a part of the Manufacturing Leadership Council the MLC, for those of you who don't know, you can look them up. Um, they stated that 80% of manufacturers 
are already on their digital IIoT journey. And then he said, that hasn't been my experience. I was curious what others thought about that stat. Um, and Richard Shaw, appropriately enough, said, well, it depends on what your definition of is, is. <laughs> um, McGraw said, I'm not 100% tracking, but I'm going to assume is equals digital IoT journey. MLC, more specifically, said that 80% of the U.S. manufacturers have deployed at least one IIoT solution into a plant. They did not define what an IoT solution is, but based on previous sessions, I've concluded that it would be a use case that includes advanced analytics. Uh, Richard Shaw said, well, I, I meant it tongue-in-cheek, but what constitutes starting your journey? Have you thought about it? Have a strategy, looking at platforms, actually executing a strategy, chosen a platform? Um, I don't have enough information to even guess if the 80% claim is true or false. And then Cheryl commented and said, you know, I feel a Walker rant coming on. And that's exactly very, very appropriate. Cheryl, yes, when I hear this, because this is absurd. That's apropos. <laughs> yeah, it's apropos. McGraw said strategy in place and deploying use cases. So inclusive of advanced analytics. So I assume that the technology has been deployed. So David says, starting your journey means that you have a strategy in place. And it turns out that Mr. McGraw is correct. That is when you have, you can officially say you have started your journey. Mm. Richard Shaw said 80% sounds high to me. Mr. Zimmerman said, ask somebody in maintenance at each of those plants and that number is going to drop drastically. And he couldn't possibly be more right. <laughs> and then Brian Privy said, the only true way we could measure is doing DTMAs. Self-evaluations are only as good as the questions and the person answering them. Ectobox's mini DTMAs is actually really good for a quick evaluation. Mm. Agreed. Mm. So what I wanted to say to you, what I wanted to ask you, uh, Alan, since you do the digital transformation maturity assessment, is what do you think of that number? 80%. <laughs> oh, let me start off with one of my favorite sayings when it comes. And now I'm a Six Sigma guy from way back. And it's the, I'm going to quote Mark Twain. There are lies, damned lies, and then there are statistics. So, <laughs> so, so I am sure that each one of those st statistics, there's an asterisk or two there. So, so based with that segue, I, I wholeheartedly agree that, that with the maintenance angle. If you want the truth, you can talk to someone in maintenance. Usually has been my experience in process engineering. Yes. Yeah, so you, the, the, I lost you. Okay. I'm back. I'm sorry. Yeah. I lost the connection. Yeah, you're good. So, go ahead. I'm sorry. Where did you lose me? No, you right at, right at the very end, right at, right okay. at the very end that if you talk to maintenance, um, if you talk to maintenance, that that's the, the most accurate way. Absolutely. So yeah, they're, they're going to give you the unvarnished truth. And, and I, I, in my experience in the DTMA specialist role, I, I wholeheartedly agree that that number 80% is, 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 very, very uh, liberal, I believe. So I, what I did was I, obviously that number, Dwayne Zimmerman, sorry. Thank you, Jeff Rankin. Um, Dwayne, my apologies, brother. Um, so we, uh, so we, we have a digital transformation maturity assessment methodology, right? So it's, it is the scoring mechanism. You know, how can an organization know where they stand relative to other organizations on their digital journey. Okay. Um, and, and in the way that that's done is every manufacturer is scored on 10 pillars and I'm going to actually go over those 10 pillars here in a minute. Okay. Right. Um, they're scored on 10 pillars and then that score is aggregated to give them a score on a zero to 100 scale. Okay. And then what we've done just to be cheeky, I guess, is we've taken that zero to 100 scale and we've applied it to a 3.0 to 4.0 scale. So if your if your aggregate score is say three is uh, 46 out of 100, then you would be a 3.46, right? Mm -hmm. Because our 10 pillars, if you were to get a if you were to get the lowest score on all 10 pillars, you would be a, a three. You would be an industry 3.0 company. Now. Um, you haven't started your digital transformation journey. You haven't started that journey until you have picked the direction you're going. Okay. So you can't say just because someone put a, um, someone put something smart on the plant floor that somehow they have, you're, you're on your journey. Okay. Because a journey of a thousand miles may begin with a single step. 
but that step has to have purpose. Yeah. Right. I mean, you have to know that you're going on a journey of a thousand miles. Yeah. A roadmap. Yep. Right. So you have to have a map in your, in your, in your book. Right. Pretty so it, the, and, and yes, agreed hundred percent, the 4.0 solutions, you know, the smartest people are on the plant floor. And, and by the way, that goes beyond, that's beyond debate. So before we get into those 10 pillars and about how does an organization know they've even started their journey, okay? What I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about, so I want to pause this and I want to go to Ford real quick. So lately, um, I've been, you know, I've been really active on Twitter lately. And if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Walker D Reynolds. I just, I rejoined Twitter when Elon was going to do the purchase and I've been following a lot of most of the stuff that I've been, uh, everything's in ma the manufacturing space. Um, and then I'm, I've been doing a lot of stuff in ML and AI there, a lot of, a lot of great data scientists and stuff that I follow on Twitter. But lately what happened was just last week, uh, Jim Farley, who is the CEO at Ford, he started popping up everywhere on Twitter. Like he went from no, no presence on Twitter at all to he's everywhere. Right. And so I did a little research and stuff and Ford has spent a fortune promoting Jim Farley's voice on Twitter. So they're promoting him everywhere. Okay. Well, at the same time I saw there's all of these influencers on Twitter who are saying, Hey, uh, you know, I, I just took delivery of my first mock. Uh, what is it? The mock E? I think that's correct. The Mustang right. mock E. Yeah. It, I took delivery of my first Mustang mock E. I'm going to be doing this across the country journey. Follow me for more. Right. So I'm like, man, where, you know, where is this coming from? And, and Farley was, has been saying, for the most part, he's been saying, typical marketing language, right? Ford revolutionized the assembly line. We revolutionized the pickup truck. We revolutionized yada, yada, yada. And now we're going to revolutionize electric vehicles. Okay. Follow us for more. It's been the, the generic jargon. So I, I own me personally, I own two vehicles. Okay. I own a Ford F-250 diesel. So a three quarter ton pickup truck that I tow my RV with and stuff. Huge Ford fan. Uh, and then I own a Tesla Model S, a, a 2022 Tesla Model S. Um, so I I reached out to Jim Farley. I, I reached out to Jim Farley on Twitter and I just asked him. Um, and I'll, I'll even read what I said here. Uh, where uh, I got to do uh, tweets and replies. All right. So I'll, I'll read what I said here. So Jim, Jim uh, Farley wrote, or this guy, David Murphy, who was the, this influencer, David Murphy said that he's, I'm on day one of a cross country drive from Detroit to La Quinta in my Mustang Mach E. He said today's cool feature, the Ford pass app, which maps the most efficient charge points and sends the plan to the nav. So on the car itself, mm. thanks Jim Farley and at Ford for designing a great car follow daily. Mm. I'm like, oh, that sounds really cool until I started looking into the Ford pass app and it's basically a cheap, you know, it's a cheap port. Basically it's trying to, you know, it's leveraging, um, your smartphone to sort of push instructions to the phone, but it's, it's done really cheaply. There's a lot of complaints about it. Okay. So I just asked David Murphy, I'm like, are you paying, are you being paid directly or indirectly by Ford for promotion or review? Because I, I didn't know if he was. And my question was, if not, can you share a feature or two that made you go, wow, hmm. right? Because I'd love to hear true first impressions from someone impartial. Thank you in advance. Okay. And then with Farley, Jim is, and he's been doing a lot of really cool posts. I really, I like the content he's been putting in his posts, but he said, um, let me switch down to here. He goes, uh, bah, bah, bah. here we go. Jim Farley posts a thing about the F-150 Lightning, which I went and looked at at the Texas State Fair last uh, October. Beautiful car. We nearly bought it. I, in fact, my plan was to trade in my F-250 and buy the Lightning. Hmm. At the end of the day, we decided 
not to do that. Okay. And, and I bought a Tesla and kept the F-250. Um, but what uh, Jim Farley said, he said, like the Model T in its time, the F-150 Lightning will have a positive impact far beyond the auto industry. Talking with at Ford Pro's Ted Canis, PG&E's Jason Glickman, explains how customers using their Lightning batteries with intelligent backup power can strengthen the energy grid, right? So I'm like, oh, awesome. Love this idea. Phenomenal. So I said, you know, but great, great, Jim. And I said, the F-150 Lightning is a great first step for Ford, but until Jim Farley, who's the CEO of the company, can answer three basic industry Ford Auto questions, and I tagged Jim in the tweet, they are still heading in the wrong direction. So question number one, what is your digital strategy? So what I want you guys to do is I want you to try and go find Ford's digital strategy. So Rick Bellotta put some stuff in the Discord server and talked a lot, a lot of good stuff about some interesting technology use Ford is using for over-the-air updates and stuff, um, which I think are cool, except, again, traditional server client um, architecture, which I take issue with. I don't understand why they're doing it that way. But Jim, Far go try to find Ford's digital strategy. Okay. It doesn't exist. <laughs> the reason I know it doesn't exist, I mean, I also have inside knowledge that it doesn't exist, but they don't have a digital strategy. They have this huge PowerPoint presentation. I think it's like 60 something pages, um, 65 pages, 66 pages or something. They don't have a digital strategy. And what is a digital strategy? It's a three sentence statement saying how it is we're going to become a smart company so that you can tell it to every single employee. Ford does not have a digital strategy. Now, I will give Ford this much credit. Outside of Volkswagen, um, Ford is the only legacy auto manufacturer who I believe is going to come out and in relatively intact. You're going to see a huge, you'll see a huge merger. GM's dead. Mary Barra is going to run GM right into the fucking ground. I mean, there's no chance on GM's side. Um, Ford will survive because they do make the best trucks in the world. Um, and, and the F-150 Lightning is amazing. I mean, I, I'm a Ford pickup truck guy, and I looked at the F-150 Lightning, and I went, I think Ford's going to do better with the truck than Tesla is. I think the F-150 Lightning is a better truck, electric truck, than the Cybertruck will be. So I think... You know, Ford has mastered the art of manufacturing trucks. They've incorporated so many cool features into the F-150 Lightning, but I have no doubt you're going to have all sorts of service issues. Okay. Uh, it, you know, reliability will be pretty low mm. initially. Okay. And that's okay. It's okay for the reliability to be low in the beginning, as long as they get better. The issue is, is that if Ford doesn't have, if Ford doesn't have a digital strategy to become a smart company, okay, then they won't be able to improve the F-150 Lightning at the exact same rate that Tesla is going to be able to improve the Cybertruck. Okay? Because what do smart companies do? They make products that get smarter, better after the customer buys them. How does Ford and other companies, how do Ford and other companies, auto companies, make their vehicles? Year to year. How do they know what's wrong? Their customers complain. Tesla doesn't even trust the customer. Tesla doesn't trust anyone. They trust the data. And Ford still can't answer the question, what is their digital strategy? They can't. So question number two was, hey, Jim, what is your plan for making Ford cars and trucks better after the customer buys them? Now, Rick Bellotta talked a little bit about some of this infrastructure stuff they're doing, and he's on point. He can share some of the stuff. He can share some stuff I can't share. But, um, and number three, I asked, what is your mission? How in 3A was how will you plug into the digital supply chain? Um, and, and here's the issue. Here's the issue. It goes right, and we'll go right back to this point here. Jim Farley is not saying anything meaningful. Like I read Jim Farley's tweets and I don't go, oh, wow, that's a visionary leader who, you know, 
uh, he's he's going to transform the automotive industry. I don't watch Mary Barra's press conferences and go, oh, she's a visionary transformative leader. Just because Mary Barra says that GM is leading digital transformation doesn't make it so. I mean, call somebody at General Motors. So call someone who you know who works at GM. This is all I do, by the way, guys. <laughs> I literally go to LinkedIn and I find people who work there. And then I call and I say, hey, we, or I send them a message. Hey, you know, off the record, you willing to share? Can I ask you three questions about your company? That's all I do. And then I, oftentimes that conversation turns into we go there ourselves and we get to see with our own eyes. They hire us to come in and take a look. You know what I mean? Well, I want so which which brings me back to the this this you know Mary Barra Jim Farley right digital transformation requires only two types of leaders in the beginning transformative and disruptive Jim Farley is not a disruptive leader he is not a transformative leader why because he's doing nothing disruptive or transformative on his Twitter page if he were a transformative leader if he were a disruptive leader. He would be transformative and disruptive on Twitter. And he's not. What is he doing? Exactly what his chief marketing officer is telling him to do. He probably, he probably couldn't tell you, he couldn't tell you the difference between a smart company and a dumb company. If you asked him, what is a smart company? I'll bet you he won't be able to answer that question. But he's going to be able to break you, give you a complete breakdown of his organization line by line in the ledger. I guarantee he'll be able to do that. <laughs> okay. So, which brings me to Alan here. So 80%, 80, the, the, the claim by the manufacturing leadership council is that 80% of manufacturers have started their digital transformation journey. They're on that journey and we're in agreement, right? That number's high. I, I concur. I, I believe that is wholeheartedly high. Okay. What do you think that number is, if you were to guess? Ooh, that's a good one. Let's see here. <laughs> I could use anal extraction to get a number. Let's see here. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say that I'm going to go. It's got to be lower than that. I'm going to say low is 45%. Okay. So I, I, I what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to go look at our data. Okay. Okay. And and let, let's use our data to 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 give. We'll tell the community based on the 1300, I think it's 1380, 80 something companies that are in our data set. Okay. Yeah. Um, they are, I'm going to give you the 10 pillars. I'm going to talk about a comment Tomas made here in a second. I'm going to respond to something Tomas said. There are 10 pillars that we score organizations across. Okay. Uh, where did that scoring come from? It came from what we learned about the difference between a digital company and a non-digital company, a smart company and a dumb company, okay? And if what we wanted to do was help chart a path between a dumb company and a smart company, a non-digital company and a digital company, it really was these 10 pillars, right? So this should be nothing new. So it's, we score them on operations, we score them on information technology, we score them on engineering, this is manufacturers, we score them on quality, we score them on leadership, we score them on infrastructure. We score them on platform. We score them on network. We score them on connectivity. And we score them on strategy. Each pillar has a matrix. Okay. So they are scored on a scale. And there is a matrix that determines, based on what we've learned during the process, there is a matrix that determines what their score is. The DTMA specialist has flexibility in like quarter points. So let's say they fall somewhere between two levels in the matrix. It is up to the specialist to decide how many quarter points I need to add to get them a score right between where I, where I think they are. So that this is where the specialists discretion comes in, but they don't, they have discretion across one point. Okay. So the way that we score is highly, highly, highly accurate. Okay. But if you look at strategy, if we agree, when, when is it a company has, we are, we're satisfied with saying a manufacturer 
has started their journey, it's when they have a strategy. Okay, if you don't, if you walk out your door on a journey and you don't have a map in your pocket and you don't have a map in your head, you have no idea where you're supposed to go by the end of that day, you're not on a journey. Okay, you're you're not on a journey. You just walked outside. And if you get if you get hit on the head by a branch falling out of a tree, that's just random dumb luck. Because you had no reason to be under that tree. You didn't choose to be under that tree. You just ended up under that tree. Okay? That is not... You're not on a journey. You're wandering around. That's all you're doing. Okay? You are on your digital transformation journey once you have started your... You have a strategy. Okay? And we argue... Now, even if you've got... Let's say you've got a a 40-page... PowerPoint slide that says this is our digital strategy. I'd much rather you have a 40 page PowerPoint slide than no slide at all. Okay. Ideally you want your digital strategy in three sentences and we'll tell organizations if they go, Oh, this, this PowerPoint deck is our digital strategy. We'll say that's not a digital strategy. So let's look at strategy as our pillars. Okay. So if they get the lowest score, the company, when we score the company, on the strategy pillar, if they get the lowest score, the matrix tells me they have no strategy. That's what it means. Lowest score means no strategy. So all we have to do is take a look at the companies that are in this sample set, which are 1,380 manufacturers all over the world. How many of them got the lowest score? Okay, how many got the lowest score? Now, that was a little challenging to go do because there's a lot, but it turns out that of all the companies in here, the only there there are only um, three hundred and twenty or so companies that had a did that had a digital strategy score of greater than the lowest score. So the lowest score is a one. Three hundred and twenty, give or take, had a score greater than one. So what does that tell us? That only about. 20 to 25 percent of the companies are have started their journey 20 to 25 percent now i'm going to argue i'm going to argue it's even lower i'm going to argue it's 10 to 20 and here's my argument every single one of those 1380 something companies knew there was a problem and that's why they got the score and the first step in digital transformation is admitting you have a problem. Okay. Um, I want to go to Tomas's um, statement here. He said, our experience doing DTMAs as the step number two in the digital transformation jury is to work with BOD, CDO, and a mixed group of people from different functions, like 10 to 15 people in t- total. What we call that, Tomas, is creating your scrum team. You want to, you, the, the, the early part of the journey is building a proof of concept, uh, from a team of only true believers. And I would argue that, you know, that first, that, that 10 to 15 people in total that you have in there, they are people who believe there's, there's a problem. Okay. Um, he also says we use eight pillars instead of 10 that Walker presented, um, Blah, 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 digital workers, competencies, first step to avoid solving problems, uh, and then digital culture, innovation, cybersecurity, industry 4.0. Yeah, I would say I'd love to talk to you about your uh, your pillars here because that's an IT. So when I look at that DTMA, that is not an operationally driven DTMA. That's an IT driven DTMA. It and neither neither is good nor bad. I mean, but uh, and I talked to Dave McGraw about this quite a bit. We're, we're trying to figure this part out, which is most organizations start their journey top down, mm-hmm. right? Capitalize millions and millions and millions of dollars, identify whatever problem some manager, you know, list, blah, blah, blah. And then they go and they deploy some platform. They solve a specific use case. Um, they spend N And then they go back and they start their next use case and they spend N again. 
and then they start their next use case and they spend N again. And then they do their next use case and they spend N again. And then people in the office start going, why do I keep getting so many complaints? If we're becoming a digital company, then why is it operations keeps telling us we don't have the tools they need to become more efficient? <laughs> and why is it cost them? Why have we spent so much money to not give them the tools they need? Well, it's really quite simple. There was no strategy for unlocking potential on the plant floor. The strategy itself wasn't designed to unlock potential on the plant floor. The strategy itself doesn't acknowledge the importance of agility, that what I want is a function of what I know, and that becoming a smart business means the whole organization is going to get smarter. So as I get smarter, what I want is going to change. And so I have to have the ability to pivot quickly and at half the cost. So one of the things about digital transformation is this, okay? If it costs you N in iteration number one, your goal to be should be to spend 0. 0.4 to 0.5 N in the second iteration. And then in the next iteration, 0. 0.2 to 0. 0.3 N. And the third iteration, 0. 0.1 N. You should be, if Moore's law does not apply in your digital, if you can't objectively say Moore's law applies in my digital transformation journey, okay, each iteration, then you're doing it wrong. You're not getting smarter. What is Moore's law? Moore's law says that with each, each technological advancement, we get twice as much stuff for half the cost, basically, okay? I can get twice as many transistors in the same amount of space. Okay, for half the cost. Um, Moore's law applies in technological advancement. If your iterations don't cost half as much as you keep going, then you did something wrong. You didn't advance technologically. I mean, they don't call it more speculation. So, Alan, when you're doing these DTMAs and you go and you ask these clients, Tell me what your digital strategy is. How many of them have any idea what you're talking about? Oh, it's, it's true. You have, to, you have to learn to crawl before you can walk, right? So, I mean, that's another good analogy. But absolutely, the vast majority that I have, the small number of samples that I've been involved with has been zero. I mean, they really are struggling to get their, feeding, their footing on how to digitally transform their organization, to your point. So exactly. I mean, it, it is the vast majority. And so what do we do about that? So in your, your observation, what is it we do in order, what do we need to do in order to, I, I'll, my observation has been that most organizations have to fail first before they figure out something's got to change, right? And that's why we created this YouTube channel, right? was, hey, everybody's making the same fucking mistakes. Stop making the same mistakes, <laughs> right? Like start with a strategy. Make sure you use an open architecture. Stop worrying about security as your number one problem. Pick an architecture that doesn't expose you. Like if, if you're spending all your time worrying about the pipes and the encryption and worrying about certified connections outbound to inbound, well, you just, you architected the wrong solution. Create certified connections from inbound, from plant floor out, and don't allow anything to talk in. Exactly. But the fact that IT groups still think, and this is what I'm talking about with Ford, server client, by the way, um, the server has to have the permission to talk to the client as opposed to the, all the clients out there only need to have permission to talk to the server and then you certify that connection. And you don't allow anything to talk to the client. The client instantiates all the connection. That's what edge-driven is. Okay. What is the solution? I mean, for me, the solution was, okay, let's look for, let's look for clients who've already made their mistake. They figured out they're doing it wrong and they need our help. But then our engineers were like, uh, I'm sick of fixing other people's projects. Can you find us? Can you get us clients who haven't already started this journey? So then it was, okay, well, well, we need to tell everyone not to do it wrong. And that's where this all came from, right? This is where YouTube came from. Hey, integrator, stop teaching this stuff. Hey, end users, stop doing it that way. And it's sort of grown into this. But anything that we're not doing, we could be doing. Is there anything end users aren't doing that they could be doing to avoid the pitfalls 
And so that when you give them, ask them the question, what is your digital strategy? They don't look at you like a deer in headlights. Precisely. And, and, and of course, the biggest portion of our value add here is the education and outreach that 4.0 provides, 4.0 solutions provide uh, through live Q&A, through the community, through the Discord channel. We are putting the word out and, and, and we're on point every time. The message hasn't changed throughout the time you've been delivering this message, Walker, and your disciples here as well. It, it, it's essentially the same message. It's just that the audience is going to have to get broader and broader and broader. And I think that we're seeing that. I really do. If you look at the, the views on the YouTube videos, you look at the, the, the involvement in the community, I think that the outreach portion is happening. And that, of course, is facilitating these conversations. A lot of people still don't even know what the term digital strategy means. It's, it's just a matter of continuing to be on point and be consistent. And then I think that the proof will be in the proverbial pudding, so to speak, and that we'll see a continued resurgence and additional value add as we keep going along with more and more people getting on board. Well, let me hear. Let's yeah, let's answer that digital strategy because you're right. Not everyone understands the digital strategy. So let me put it. Let me put it in a way I never put it. Okay. And that is if I'm talking to an executive and they say, well, why is a digital strategy matter? Like that, that three sentence statement you put up there, why do we have to have that as opposed to a slide with, you know, 60, 60 slides, right? Or a PowerPoint presentation. And I say this, why is it that a company's mission statement is only a couple of sentences? Why are, why are there five core values in an organization instead of a hundred? What, what's the reason? Like, couldn't you come up with 100 values? Well, the answer is this. You want everyone to be able to remember it, and you want it to be concise. Mm. So here's a really good example, and we're going to go maybe three minutes over. So I'm going to end with this story, and then we'll call it a week. But we were working with, a, we're still working with this large automotive company, okay? One of the biggest automotive companies in the world. They're a traditional company, and we're working with them building their plan of the future. And they um, they had a true believer in their organization who totally understood. He had been there forever, 25, 30 years. He, he worked with another director who was getting ready to retire. They were both getting ready to retire. And they were like, you know what? Our company's in trouble. And we need, we need to take the strategic industry 4.0 approach to solving this digital transformation problem. And we need to not do it the way we've always done it, which is we just throw money at a bunch of different groups and whoever ends up a little bit ahead, we give them the rest of the money and they keep going, right? That's generally the approach that you take. The reason that doesn't work in digital transformation is that the value you get out of digital transformation is directly correlated to the amount of compounded value you create through multiple solutions, mm. right? It's directly proportional. So the, the value in digital transformation isn't just in the use case I solved today. It's when you, people ask us, how do you count, calculate ROI on digital transformation? Well, one of the challenges is, is that you have to attribute some of the profit, some of the return from future solutions to what I'm doing right now. Because what I'm building right now is the shoulders upon which I'm going to solve tomorrow's problem. I don't solve tomorrow's problem in a silo or in a vacuum. I solve it as part of a much larger whole. And the decisions I make today, they have a direct impact on whether or not we can solve tomorrow's problem at 0.5n. And, and the problem three weeks from now at 0.3n. Okay. So this organization, uh, we started with them doing uh, two, two proof of concepts together. One in an existing, old, dark, dated uh, part of the operation, and one in their state-of-the-art plan of the future. Same architecture for both, so that the pane of glass, everything that everyone's interacting with, data collection, aggregation, analytics, was all going to be unified. Here's what happened very quickly. Because there was no concise digital strategy initially, what you ended up with, we, we were constantly having to fend off um, technical debt. 
we were constantly having to fight off technical debt or fighting off uh, bureaucratic decisions to just go with, uh, you know, cloud platform X versus cloud platform Z. Didn't matter that cloud platform X doesn't meet the minimum technical requirements. Therefore, there's an additional cost that will be incurred to put a gateway between the digital architecture and and platform X versus using cloud platform Z. Mm. Right? Mm. The bureaucrats, because there's no digital strategy, no concise statement that's repeatable and everyone can memorize it, the bureaucrats don't understand that the decision they're making today means I'm going to spend N tomorrow and not 0.5 N. And when I say tomorrow, I mean tomorrow could be at geological scale. It could be three months from now. They have no idea. And so what ends up happening is when they get up to that point where they're not getting, where they're not having their cost and doubling their return with each iteration, what they determine is total cost of ownership outweighs the value over the next four quarters, six quarters. When all we really needed to do was codify a digital strategy up front and say, no, Platform X doesn't work here without us, without you adding $600,000 for additional engineering to build a gateway between Platform X and our architecture. Or we can use Platform Z mm. because Platform Z supports it out of the box. And it doesn't matter that the sales guy at Platform X is the guy you play golf with on the weekends or they're going to help you build a vacation home you know, in Lake of the Ozarks, right? Which, by the way, happens all the fucking time. <laughs> hey, by the way, those types of deals are happening at Automate 2022 right now. I've been in the room for those deals. Okay? It's all fucking glad handing and, you know, it's... So, anyway, today's message, which was our, our 80% of manufacturers, have they really started their digital journey? Okay as the Manufacturing Leadership Council claims. No, that's absurd. Okay. Based on the way the MLC is um, determining they're on their journey, is it's accurate. Uh, probably 80% have got a smart thing on the plant floor, right? Um, but that doesn't mean you started that journey. Hmm. And you're doing a huge disservice to your customers if you're telling them they're on that journey. That journey doesn't start until you, you have a digital strategy. Full stop, 100%, take it to the bank. All right, Alan, any parting thoughts, comments, questions, concerns? Oh, I, I just want to say amen to that last statement. Absolutely. Uh, where the rubber meets the road in regards to the digital strategy being the, the linchpin of the digital transformation process. So I, I can't thank you enough for having me on today. It's been truly my pleasure being able to be here with you to co-host. I appreciate you, brother. I want to we'll close with Tomas's last comment. He said, as Alan is saying, you are educating in the first place. This is exactly why we have step one before the DTMA. During step one, we explain what is digital transformation about and bring the digital transformation team to the same understanding. I'm going to piggyback on what Tomas is saying here. Uh, part of the reason that um, I argue that Industry 4.0 is not, you know, what the EU standard says is Industry 4.0 is not the standard is because that isn't the form. The standard they wrote is not the form in which, through which digital transformation manifests for manufacturers. Why? The EU standard for Industry 4.0 says that in that Industry 4.0, the digital transformation maturity scale, starts with computerization. Hmm. It does not. It starts with education. The very first step in digital transformation is education. And if Tomas knows that, and everyone in our community knows that, why does the rest of the manufacturing world not known that. And I'll tell you why. It's pretty fucked up. Why? <laughs> because when you educate your clients, you are giving them the standard through which they can judge your value and performance. And the large companies, the major players in automation, 
aren't interested aren't interested in educating their clients. Mm. They don't want their clients smarter. They don't. They want them dumb and ignorant and scared so they can they can use that fear, that ignorance and that lack of clarity to convince them to buy things that aren't going to provide the value they say they will. And then they'll just blame it on someone else when it doesn't work. Hmm. All right. With that, we're going to call it a, we'll call it a week. I will, uh, Alan, I, I it's really, really appreciate you joining us, man. I can't wait to have you do it again. Absolutely. My pleasure, Walker. Thank you so much. Uh, have a great week, guys. Thank you.